Welcome to the Nonprofit Experience. I'm Sandy Sear, Managing Editor for the Philanthropy Journal. In this episode, we hear from two nonprofit communication professionals, Katie Todd with the Me Fine Foundation and Melanie Davis-Jones, who most recently served as a senior executive at the United Way of the Greater Triangle. Hi, Melanie. Hi, Katie. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Good. So... I know a little bit about you, but okay. I love to know, how did you end up sitting in the seat across from me today? <laughs> uh, let's see. I did nonprofit uh, boards for a bit, but then I worked professionally in the North Carolina Museum of Art, and most recently I was the chief strategy officer and senior vice president for marketing and community engagement. Yes, the title went on forever at United Way of the Greater Triangle. And so I think I've always had sort of that passion for the work. I um, grew up in a household where service was very important. And so we did a lot of things. My mother worked in nursing homes. She was a consultant dietitian. So we did a lot with reading to seniors and dying Easter eggs and all sorts of things. So I think I came to the work even though my initial career was in, in ad agencies. Mm-hmm. I really had the heart through my volunteerism for a nonprofit. And how about you? So similarly, I was raised by a mother who kind of initially instilled that sense of whatever you can do to give back and treat people with respect and give make sure they have what they need to thrive. We did. So remember doing programs like uh, there was a Horses Help. So I grew up in Phoenix, mm-hmm. Arizona, and so it was a program that worked with uh, children with autism or who are on the autism spectrum disorder mm-hmm. and used horses as a form of rehabilitation therapy. And then we did a variety of other service projects. My mom's family grew up in South St. Paul and received gifts every holiday from the Knights of Columbus. So we're family who recognize to be really grateful for what you have and there's always opportunities to give more. So my profession my first professional job was actually as a public school teacher. I taught about 45 minutes north of Durham in Henderson mm-hmm. in Vance County and while I didn't stay in public education as a teacher, I took my passion for fighting systematic inequities to the sector um, and have been in different roles ever since. Mm-hmm. And how did that classroom experience sort of inform the work that you do now? We're hearing so much about teachers. And yes. It just seems like this would be an interesting segue. Yeah, I mean, it. I, I mean, I was 22 when I started teaching, and I had students who were 21. And so just trying to... Like, understand how to, you know, fake confidence um, was really important, <laughs> a, skill, a skill like you have to learn on the job. I mean, I think just really recognizing, we talked a lot about, like, differentiating teaching. You've got students on all different levels regarding reading levels and math and name the skill set. And mm-hmm. I taught, actually, in the exceptional children's program, so students with special needs. And so even having a having to like really push myself to ensure that I was meeting each student where they were at, which I think was really challenging. It would be much either easier to write like a giant lesson plan and just teach one subject. But that's not how it works in the classroom and that's not how it works in the world. And I think that was a really important lesson for me to take away and apply as I think about whether it's doing communications, knowing that you can't just have one message um, for the general public to be able mm-hmm. to absorb and, and act on. I think also, too, 
um, you know, just the ability to learn that that learning happens mutually. So I think my students taught me so much. They taught me, you know, where how to be more graceful, how to be more patient. Um, they taught me to take things sometimes less seriously. You know, so I did Teach for America. So it was a very, especially at that time, it was a program that was very regimented and driven, and you had these type A students brought in, mostly straight from undergrad, and you kind of had this perception of what success looked like and what excellence should be. And that was not an appropriate frame for me to put on my students, that they were successful in a lot of ways. I had a student, a senior named James, and James read his first book his senior year of high school with me. He read Shiloh which was one of my favorite books. I had students learn to write their name in cursive for the first time. And so it was for me a lot of like letting go of my expectations, not lowering my expectations for my students, but being able to reframe them to fit them as individual people, not senior in high school, junior in high school, student with this particular intellectual disability. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I can feel that transition in a nonprofit space where we like to just kind of people tend to clump the clients or the community together where it's just they're just this one mass homogenous, mm -hmm. not needing different ne things, not understanding different voices, not understanding how targeted those um, kind of services need to be in order to truly make the shifts that we're looking for. So that, that's terrific. I love that you shared that. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Yeah. Well, as someone who sat in the communication, strategic marketing, and branding seat for a lot yeah. of years, mm -hmm. how have you navigated those exact conversations within your organizations of pushing that we have more than one constituency or we need to be thinking beyond... Box A. <laughs> <laughs> How much time do you have? Uh, <laughs> you know, it's challenging. It's challenging. I'm a brand strategist, so, you know, I really worked hard, especially starting at the North Carolina Museum of Art. When I accepted that job, you know, one of the conversations I had with Larry Wheeler was, if you want to truly make this museum inclusive, then I'm interested in this job. It was right before the new building was going to open. And I said, you know, it's a free institution, yet it doesn't feel like it's inclusive. It doesn't feel like it's diverse. It doesn't feel like everyone is really welcome. And so I want to be intentional about that kind of marketing. Are you comfortable with that or are you not? And he's like, sure, that's what I want to see. But it was a challenge to constantly say, well, we don't want pictures filled with, you know, people in beautiful gowns holding uh, glasses of wine. So, you know, in the preview magazine, that was kind of what the membership was at that time. Uh -huh. So I, I always try and ground it in what's the real experience, though? What's the real connection that we're trying to make? How do we become credible? And it's a matter of taking the marketing and the communications and really saying, how does that translate in the strategic plan? How does that, strate how does that translate into programming? You can, I'm a marketer who says, yeah, you can get them in the door once, 
But if the experience isn't aligned to that marketing, that communication, that promise of the brand, then they never come back. So I think that authenticity really, you know, that the Museum of Art experience really taught me that. And I will say at United Way, sort of that same thing where we had to push the boundary of, well, if you're just a fundraiser, then you don't have relevance to what's actually going on in the community. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a lot of community engagement. It was, let's just sort of pat them on the head and say, yeah, we've listened, but we don't really care what they have to say because you know what our big corporate partners don't or you know it may make donors uncomfortable to not only hear what the um what the clients are talking about or what the agency executives are talking about but to really how do you deliver against that i think that is a huge challenge just generally in the nonprofit space where we say we want to hear the voices of the communities we serve Yet, that's only a check the box. It's not a, as you did with your students, I really have to tailor this. I really have to think about it. One of the best examples, one of the board members at, um, at United Way said, you know what, we talk about what communities need, and we truly believe that we know they want food or they want a, you know, better transportation, and all of those things are valid. We asked that to a community group, and they all said, sidewalks. We thought they were going to say new grocery stores or better bus lines, and they all said sidewalks. And when we asked why, and we were all stunned, and when we asked why, they said two things. Our children can play and we can walk and exercise on sidewalks, and if you go to other communities, they have sidewalks. Mm. And so it is that sense of pride and purpose mm -hmm. that they really wanted. And that, for me, was a lesson in listening intentionally and also helping kind of the marketing the brand grow up through what people's real experiences are so i'm curious you know we one of the we talk a lot about in the sector like intersectionality and how mm -hmm. Well, many of our organizations are set up to address single issues. Yes. That is not a way to actually close gaps, bring people to different levels. Where do you think, particularly here in the Triangle, are we heading into a direction where nonprofits are working more... Do you think nonprofits are ready to work together to address... Has, you know, how these different issues are interfacing? Or are we still at a point where, as a nonprofit organization, I'm still very much focused on my mission, I'm fighting for my resources, because I'm fighting for my people, but I'm still fighting for my resources, and that may mean that I can't work with you or shouldn't work with you. Mm -hmm. I know. That's a big question <laughs> for a Wednesday afternoon. Uh, yes. Um I would say, now, the work that we did at United Way was really, over the last uh, two or three years, was about building collaborative partnerships. So in 2015, you could not come to United Way fun for funding unless you were part of a collaborative, so that the agencies were actually working together, either on a singular issue, but more, you know, it was really focused on a two-generational approach. So how do you help the kids? But how do you help the parents? Because you can feed the kids at school, but if they go home to an empty refrigerator because their dad isn't working, well, you really haven't solved the problem. You haven't fully addressed the issue. 
I will say the agencies were a little unhappy, you know, at the collaborative approach, but they truly started to see the shift. They, uh, you know, the last survey that we did with them was, you know, we really weren't fans of this. We didn't see how well this could work. We didn't believe it because we're all, we all worry about our own resources. Um, but it's working because we're doing trade-offs and we're understanding that that agency A is better suited for, to apply for that grant or better suited to serve that particular client in that niche. I don't have to try and do everything. We're really much more specific in the work that we're doing and collaborative because not only are we talking to one another, it's not just a referral on the phone. It's someone who's sitting in a meeting with us. And you know what? A lot of times the clients were sitting there talking about what their needs were. So it gives me hope that um, that can happen. I do think it's still a challenge, though, because not so much on the agency and the nonprofit side, but on the donor side. Mm -hmm. And big donors will say, sure, you know, I hate that, you know, Agency A, B, C, D, E, F, G comes and talks and wants, you know, their piece of the pie. So I like the idea of a collaborative partnership. But that's a huge leap for people to understand that if you give to one agency that's focused on housing, you think, well, I'm doing a good thing. You know, it's a huge training piece on the donor side because it then says, well, but if I'm not giving to agency A, then it's the work that I care about being done. Mm. We have not had a solutions orientation in this sector. We have not said, let's look together collaboratively. Let's, let's look at it from a perspective of who are the people doing the work? How can they come together to work efficiently and effectively? And until the donors and the funders actually value that piece, I mean, we had other funders saying to us, are you sure that's what you want to do? And we we're like, yeah, let's try it, because we're trying to get to a solutions orientation versus a one-off. You know, yes, you can address a basic need, but if you're not looking across the board and you're not looking in a two-generational way, you're always going to be addressing the same kind of issues. The organization I work at now we help families who have critically ill children at Triangle Area Hospitals. And I'm so proud to work for an organization that's committed to helping families in financial crisis. Why are these families in financial crisis in the first place? A lot of them because of systems, whether, again, it's healthcare, care, housing systems, where if you miss one rent payment, I mean, then you're facing eviction. Um, predatory loan markets, uh, it just... I could go on and on, but I think that's, you know, and that's a challenge. Again, some nonprofits are tackling, but until kind of there's this shift as a sector to commit to that, it's going to be, we're going to be having these conversations for a lot longer. Because systemic change really requires across the sector. It's not just the nonprofits. It's not just those of us who do this kind of work. It's the corporate partners who need to be paying attention to it and understanding, you know, if you're not addressing issues like educational disparity right now, what's your workforce going to look like in 10 years? So that's the piece, you know, it's sort of that network of 
how do you get people to understand that everyone has a role to play in changing systems? And that's a huge, you know, it sounds, you know, incredible. It's like ending poverty. We're going to do that by the end of the month. You know, and people just don't believe that. But if we don't get over this perspective of it's big, it's hard, we couldn't possibly, and what could one little person do versus what might your role be? So those of us who work in the nonprofit sector, sure, we, you know, we get up every day and we think about this. But how might you affect change? And yes, sometimes it is, you know, working in the community garden or, you know, helping to pack backpacks. All of that is valid and important. But if you're not having some of the conversations around the table with your family or where you work uh, to talk about what does advocacy start to look like, then it's going to be, it's a heavy, heavy lift for the nonprofit sector. We can't do it by ourselves. But I think it is, how do you, you know, that's sort of back to that marketing communications piece. How do you um, energize people around uh, this type of work? And how do we validate those of us who work in this sector to say, you're professionals, we, we, we have a lot heavier lips, we work with a lot fewer resources than our big corporate partners. But how can the corporate partners help leverage their funders or funding? And how do they help um, energize their staffs around, you know, not just a one-off on volunteerism? How do they find their issue? And I guess that's us collectively. How do we find the issues that people really care about? And that's what I would always say. You know, find your passion. Your passion may not be mine, but find your passion because I promise you that your passion is going to be a piece of the puzzle that helps to touch some of that systemic change that we're all trying to address. How do you see those conversations getting started? Or how, and, and kind of, who needs to own it? That's a great question. I think we all need to own it. I think there are drivers, just as I said, you know, kind of across networks. To your point, we're neighbors. We all live in the same place, you know, same place, one, the same types of things. But I wonder if it's a different approach in how we have those conversations. So maybe it's not the where does it start, but the what. You know, when I hear you use words like inclusive, I love that word, and equitable. I love that word, but I think it means a lot to a lot of other people, and it's a lot of different people. And I think that sense of otherness somehow comes into the fore, that, you know, why do I need to worry about those other people? Um, they're not, I don't see them, they're not really my neighbors, you know. So I think the conversation perhaps comes from a, a place of, um, I, I'm trying to think about the, the different way to approach it. And, you know, we all know that people work within their own self-interest. So the thought of creating a triangle that's not inclusive and not equitable and painting that picture of what that looks like 10 years from now. 
when we haven't paid attention to those people in, who are in need. I, you know, I just, I guess I always try and do sort of that experiential thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know this is exactly getting to your, your question because I think it's the ability to have that kind of conversation across the board. Mm-hmm. You know, that it's not just, because those of us in the nonprofit sector talk to each other all the time. Right. <laughs> Which is fantastic. How do we then shift it to the self-interest of the, the community so that people in corporations listen, but people in government listen, and people in the health system listen? You know, to what you were talking about, systemic change is really sort of that pebble in the water that has to, you know, kind of ripple out from this sense of who do we want to be mm-hmm. as community? And I think when people start to answer that question, they probably touch on things that you said, you know, inclusive. Well, I would want a place where everybody feels comfortable. I would want to live someplace where everyone feels welcome. I would want to live in a place where the nonprofit work is valued as much as the work of any other sector. Uh, we're not just a nice add-on. We're not the the poly do-gooders mm-hmm. who you know the Pollyanners, I guess, who you know are only want to do that. We care about our community, so it feels like the way in is part of how we can we might think about where's the right starting point. Does that make sense? How might you answer that? So I think it starts with in my mind, a little bit of the nonprofit sector, but also then for folks in the public and the government sector and the for-profit sector to ask questions, to get clarity, to check their own assumptions about why do I think this about nonprofits? Why do I hear when I meet someone who says, I work for a nonprofit, my first reaction is like, oh, that's so sweet. Or, oh, you must you must not want to make a lot of money. Why do I ask that? I And I think, you know, that's a really... Uh, I would love to hear someone say that. And they, because agreeing with you, like, it's not just on us. It has to be something that we dialogue about as, mem- as employed by the public and private sector because if we aren't as people committed to doing the work individually to understand ourselves, then it doesn't matter how much me and the nonprofit sector sit across from person of for-profit sector and say, like, Oh, but this is why we're, you know, you need to dismantle the racist systems and, you know, take down the patriarchy and, mm-hmm. and, and you know, but th- without giving the context without, and without the commitment of the person across the table saying, okay, I need to, this is something I need to sit up and pay attention to and start to check in within myself. Um, I don't know how to get that process started, but I think it takes just a few examples. I mean, there are folks who do that and in our, in our region in particular, so really having them offer themselves as models to say, like, I walked in with this assumption about nonprofit work or about how um, particular nonprofits work with certain families and, you know, just even even what charity means and who benefits from charity. Um, and I've learned that my assumptions were wrong and this is why and this is why I encourage you, so... Mm-hmm. And I think that requires having you know, diverse voices around the table. I mean, without that, then it's easy to just have that very singular-minded, oh, this is right. When I started at United Way, I looked at all of the videos, and I said, 
Um, do you do you see a problem with any of these videos? No, not at all. We're very proud of them. I said, well, interestingly enough, and so for the listening audience, I'm a woman of color. Uh, <laughs> I said, you know, it's very interesting because the people of color are all, you know, drug addicts. Uh, he had jail, you know, he had jail time, where the people who are not people of color were, you know, things happened to them. So an accident mm -hmm. happened or a sick child happened. So you have this underlying narrative that you don't see. And they all looked at me like, oh, we don't want to work for her. <laughs> that was sort of the first thing of, oh, this is going to be hard because she's going to push us. But, I, you know, you're absolutely right, Katie. We have to push the conversations, whether we're people of color or not. And understand that, you know, I, I, I had a board member say to me, well, you know, Mel Melanie, maybe you shouldn't present so much about, you know, the demographics and, you know, the, the strategies and the issues around equity. And I was really excited because we were working on our strategic plan, really kind of building equity into the strategic plan. And I said, yeah, why not? I'm, you know, I'm the head of marketing and demographics. That's part of my work. And she said, well, you know, you have, since you have that experience, you might make people uncomfortable. I was like, and what experience is that? Well, you know, I, you, I'm, I'm sure you grew up in poverty and, you know, probably, you know, will make people uncomfortable if you talk about that. It's like, wow, okay. <laughs> what about me makes you think that besides the color of my skin? And she's like, well, I just assumed that. I was like, well, my father was a PhD and a professor, you know, my mother was college educated, my grandparents were college educated, I went to Duke, not on a scholarship, I mean, so probably I am as far away from that image that you have in your head, um, and I think that that is, you know, it's those, those are the kind of barriers that we just have to be able to have an open conversation about. I'm glad that you you kind of held your head and thought, yeah. you know, you're shaking your head at me. It's like, but we have to have those conversations, mm -hmm. you know. And I had to have, in many ways, the courage, and she was a board member, to say, to push back a little and say, wait a second, you know, your expectations and your perceptions of me are not what you think. And if that's how you treat me, and I'm a professional, I'm a senior executive in this organization, how do you interact with the people that have more need than I do? How do you deal with the you know, agency executives who see this day in and day out and constantly are having to check their own bias at the door? Um, and I think that's such a vital piece of that that conversation. And that diverse voices, we're not asking, we're not saying we're always right. We're just saying that diversity in conversation across the board is what's going to shift. It's how we become more inclusive. It's how that solutions orientation. It's how we stop saying, oh, that's somebody else's problem. Those good charitable folks, you know, those people who actually want to work in the nonprofit space, we'll let them figure it out. They don't need our help where it's just so different that they actually do. Yeah. And the reality that the nonprofit sector, particularly in the Triangle, is a predominantly white yes. cisgender female sector. and. Yes. As someone who's worked as the communications professional for nonprofits, I have struggled with being able to check 
my identities and my privilege in how we tell, well, Sarah here, I always say how we tell our stories, but it's not us telling stories, it's us providing platforms for individuals to be able to tell their stories. Exactly. And I think that, and I'm really, I'm excited because the generation that is coming through not even just the nonprofit sector, but kind of entrepreneur and social sector outside of the C3 world are, is a much more diverse, is much more grounded in like how racial equity is showing up and how race is the, often the sole determinant for all these disparate outcomes we're seeing and all the issues we work on. And particularly from the language communications marketing side, really being able to push back on these dominant narratives that have been in place and being able to speak across power lines and above um, and say, this isn't right. This is what the impact is. Your intentions, great. But guess what? Intentions don't cut it this day and age because when we're impacted and we're internalizing that and we're already um, you know, particularly working with folks who've been oppressed by racist systems, then we're not we're not doing any good work here. And so, um, part of that's through the work I've seen done through the Young Nonprofit Professional Network here in the Triangle. And we just had uh, they had our, their nonprofit Strong Summit, and I had the pleasure of getting to sit in a workshop around like white dominant culture. And I know there's another presenter um, who talked a lot about how do you even bring race equity into your workplace. It starts with budgeting. I mean, just all these, one, very practical tips, but then pushing the envelope in ways that I don't believe or I don't know, but my gut is that our sector hasn't been pushed before. And so, and that's not just, I don't think that's unique to the nonprofit sector. I think we're seeing that showing up in government, we're showing up in the private sector. Um, And I think that kind of grassroots movement will ultimately get back to the very initial questions we were talking about is people being able to operate from shared understandings of like how I want to have an equitable, inclusive triangle where everyone thrives, where everyone is able to have the the life that they want and deserve to have. Mm Thank you for listening to The Nonprofit Experience. The Nonprofit Experience is a project of the Philanthropy Journal. Our managing editor is Sandy Sear. Our graduate editor is Kristen Gullihue. Our graduate assistant editor is David Mueller. And our communication assistant is Haley Jones. This episode was produced by David Mueller, who also wrote our theme music.